Hey everybody, Magnus here. Before I get going into this week's episode, which probably just at a casual glance, I think most of you have uh, figured out, that this episode is going to be all about Bizarro. The Smallville episode Bizarro, which more specifically is the season premiere for the sainted seventh season of the show. I don't want to take too much time uh, away from that, but I do want to make a, I can't say an announcement, but uh, I do want to make an acknowledgement here, all right? And that is uh, the the donation that was made to Trennis Magnus Punches Reality by longtime listener and friend of the show, Doug Meacham. Doug writes, Trennis Magnus Punches Reality, and then he goes on to speculate, episode number 279, question mark. And uh, Doug, I'm really sorry to let you down on that. <laughs> uh, in theory, that is probably where this episode would have gone if I were still adhering to that eight-episode structure that I used to use back in the old days. But obviously, that's not happening here and now anymore. So uh, anyway, all apologies for that. Obviously, this is episode 284, or at least that's the plan. Anyway, so yeah, episode uh, 284. And uh, anyway, just wanted to just kind of set the record straight on that. You know, uh, Doug, I, what you made, I think, was a, a thinking man's error, like, an, like a smart guy's error, you know? Uh, I, I think I understand what your logic behind, you know, assuming this is episode 279. I think I understand what your logic was with that, but, uh, yeah. So, uh, here we are. Episode 284. So, uh, uh, Doug goes on to write, Welcome back, Your Excellency, and congratulations on your recent nuptials. I'm going to put Doug's message on pause here and say, uh, yeah, thank you very much, Doug. It's, uh, it's actually good to be back. A lot better in fact, than I think it would have been. I mean, uh, Doug, I, this this is maybe a little bit uh, inside baseball a little bit, but, you know, there's some bullshit that was going on behind the scenes, some of which is public, you know, goings on with my wedding and, you know, work and then some other things. And then other parts of it maybe not so public that, you know, uh, I don't think really very many people besides me know about really at all. But, uh, yeah, you know, um, Doug, I'm going to be, like, totally honest with you here and tell you that I wasn't, I kind of went into, like, my return from the hiatus. I kind of went into that with eh, a little bit of trepidation, shall we say. Uh, I've, if memory serves, my first episode back to active duty, it was that New Avengers comic book that I talked about which I think was part one of the century. And the reason I started with that is because that was just something that I had in the archive. You know, I've, I don't have very many episodes in the archive anymore, but there are a few of them. And that was one. And then there was another episode from the archive. And then another, it actually took a while before I started recording new episodes, which the first of which to have come out. Um, I think the first was that Mask of Zorro episode, and then after that, I uh, I uh, dove headfirst into the Legion of Superheroes five years later stuff, and I got to tell you, Doug, going into this thing, I wasn't 
originally convinced that I was going to be having as much fun with this as I have been having, you know, even, uh, no offense to anybody else, but even the mask of Zorro episode didn't necessarily prove it to me. It was really the Legion of superheroes episodes that just kind of reminded me what it is that I like about podcasting to begin with, you know? And so anyway, this is all just, you know, Doug, forgive me for, you know, running off at the mouth here, but, uh, you know, this is all, I guess, sort of a long way of saying that I wasn't originally expecting to have as much of a good time as I, in fact, have been having. And so, anyway, but I really do appreciate you and the other listeners hanging in there, sticking around. You know, because when I, when I counted toes on all of this and tried to figure out, you know, just how long I was gone, it was actually a pretty long time, you know? I mean, um, again, if memory serves, I... I I went on hiatus starting in September of 2018, so October, November, December, January, February, March, April, and then starting into May. That's eight months, bro. And there's no guarantee if you're gone for that long, there is no guarantee that you're still going to have any listeners by the time you come back. And, you know, I mean, I do think it would be fair to say that my numbers are down as compared to where they were. But the upshot to that is, number one, I'm just having more of a good time recording now than I have in a pretty fucking long time. Um, and the other thing is, you know, the losses were nowhere near as heavy as I was originally expecting, you know? So all in all, you know, yeah, it really is good to be back in a lot of ways. So uh, anyway, better get into Doug's message here. Cause this is about, this is really about him. Not so much me, but anyway, uh, Doug goes on to say, I've been eagerly awaiting the return of your show proper and specifically your ongoing coverage of Smallville during your retrospectives. We finally get to hear you drool over the sainted seventh season. Looking forward to it. And I'm going to put Doug's message back on hold and say, you know something, Doug, thank you very much, actually, for for saying that. Um, the, the thing is, you know, I... I think by now, you know, you, if I've got this right, you've listened to all or at least most, I would guess, of the Smallville retrospectives. And so it doesn't sound like it's any secret to you that this is actually my favorite season of the show. And so now seems like a pretty good time for me to say that, uh, guys, I really don't know. Okay, I sincerely, honestly don't know how this this sainted season is going to get paced out because I was at one time I was kind of striving to do four Smallville episodes for every retrospective show that I was doing basically get four for one in every single episode of Trennis Magnus uh, Punches Re- well I, I guess actually the name of this series is Magnus Talks About Smallville so basically getting four episodes of Smallville into each helping of Magnus Talks About Smallville that was that was my original agenda, you know? That's been an ideal that there have been times when I was able to do that. There have been times when I was not able to do that. It, the number was actually a little bit lower, a little bit less than four. There have been other times when the number was actually noticeably higher than four. And so, you know, it's been an ideal, and it's not something that I've always been successful in living up to, but nevertheless, that was sort of the target, you know, that was like the, the, 
the ideal number for every single one of these retrospectives. And again, clearly not completely successful with that. All of this is kind of a way, Doug, for me to set the table and say, I don't know that I can guarantee even that for this season. I'm thinking the number of episodes that I talk about in each of these Magnus talks about Smallville shows, it may be one or two per episode. You know, I mean, by that, I mean one episode of Smallville or maybe two episodes of Smallville. That may be the best I can do for at least some of the Sainted Seventh Season. And the reason for that is because, you know, Doug, I don't know if you, I mean, you've been hanging around in the the online fan community for a long, long time. So I'm guessing that at least on some things, and at least at certain times, you find yourself at, shall we say, extreme variance with the prevailing fan opinion of whatever. You know, it's sometimes, you know, Doug, I just, the sense I get from you is that every now and then, not often, but every now and then, you kind of look around and you ask yourself, am I the only one in the room who sees this, you know? And that's kind of where I'm coming from. I would say with Smallville in general, but with the Sainted Seventh Season in particular, you know? Um, this Sainted Season gets dragged on the internet all the freaking time. And it just, it make, it just fills me with curiosity, dude. Like, what is it that I'm seeing that these people are not? Or what are they seeing that I'm not, you know? I mean, yeah, there's that episode Hero, and I'll, believe me, I'll, we'll, we'll get into that when we get into that, you know? And look, I mean, I get it, but it's like at the same time, number one, there there is a completely fair, totally valid explanation for the problems that the Sainted Seventh Season admittedly does have. I mean, I'm not living in denial here. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, the good far outweighs the bad. Far outweighs the bad. And so what I think, and this is my point, what I think may happen is that I may only talk about one or two episodes of... Uh, the Sainted Seventh Season for each of these Magnus Talks About Smallville retrospectives, just because that's the degree of detail that I need to drill down to in order to get that, like, intellectual satisfaction that I know I've done my job to the absolute best of my ability that I cannot possibly have done any better than what you're listening to right now. And so, you know, as I've organized my notes and tried to get everything squared away for the Sainted Seventh Season, what I've noticed is, Doug, I've got a fucking shit ton of notes here, dude. Like a, like a lot of notes for all these different episodes and everything. And so I'm not making any predictions, or for that matter, I'm not making any threats, but it looks like the only logical way for me to proceed through the Sainted Seventh Season is by whittling those numbers down, getting them down, you know, uh, so that I don't release like a four-hour episode or, or, or something like that, you know, just so I can make sure I'm talking about four episodes of Smallville, you know? So I don't know if you listeners and you in particular, Doug, are going to regard that as good news or bad news, or for that matter, if you're even going to care 
Because, you know, Doug, I don't know if you and I have ever talked about this, but, you know, I do have listeners. They are rare. This I do affirm. But I do have listeners that, for some reason, they just like listening to me talk about pretty much anything, you know? Um, They can sit there listening to me spitball ideas about conspiracy theories with Chris Honeywell. They can uh, listen to me talk about albums like rock, uh, rock albums with uh, Tom Panarese. Um, they can listen to me do a commentary for Knight Rider. I mean, it can, it can fucking be anything, right? And so uh, I never got the idea that that was you, but I do know that there are some people out there that just for some reason want to listen to me talk. And so, you know, for people like that, I don't know if doing one or two episodes of the Sainted Seventh Season for every episode of... Magnus talks about Smallville. I don't know if for them that's good news, that's bad news, that's who cares news, yeah, you know, fake news, you know, whatever. I, I mean, I don't know. So, uh, and for you in particular, Doug, I really don't know if, you know, that's going to be, you know, like I say, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> if you're going to consider that to be uh, good news or, or, or what. But, I mean, I'm going to go into some pretty intense detail and depth and analysis with the Sainted Seventh Season. Um, I think in no small part because I love it so much, but also because, like I say, this is one of the most maligned seasons of Smallville's entire run, you know? I mean, there are people out there, and I don't, obviously I, I don't relate to this, but there are people out there who swear by the dreaded season four, you know? And don't really get as much into the Sainted Season 7, and it's like, what the fuck are you talking about, you know? So, look, I don't know. I mean, we're going to see how how it all plays out here, and I'm kind of rambling, so I'm just going to get back into your message here, Doug. So, uh, Doug goes on to say, all the best on your life's adventure with your beautiful bride, and here's to episode 300. Can't wait to see what you have in store. Signed, your loyal listener, Doug and there was a financial uh, donation that was atta- uh, attached to this. This was not just an email that he sent. This was a PayPal donation that was sent in to uh, the uh, Two True Freaks uh, PayPal address, which Scott Gardner dutifully sent on to me. And, Doug, this is where I owe you... <laughs> I owe you um, a little bit of an apology. Uh, what happened was... It was, uh, let me think. It was Wednesday, June the, or sorry, not Wednesday. It was Thursday, Thursday, June the 27th, that I was notified of the uh, PayPal donation that you made. And, Doug, you need to understand something. I found out about that. This is not an exaggeration. I am not being hyperbolic. I had literally just finished putting the finishing touches on the episode that you're about to hear. (laughs) So um, had I found out about this donation any sooner, what you're listening to right now would actually have been part of this episode proper because, I don't know, I think that's kind of cool to do it that way. But obviously that's not the way that things worked out. So, uh... 
But just understand that, <laughs> Doug, that would have been my preference, you know, uh, saying all of this in the context of the episode proper. But, you know, maybe the good news is now you don't have to sit there wading through, you know, the uh, uh, introductory theme music for this episode. You can just get straight into uh, me thanking you for your listenership, for your friendship, and in this case, for your financial support. Thank you very much, Doug. Um, Now, Doug, the standing arrangement that you and I have is, as I remember, you would prefer that I not say on mic what the uh, dollar amount is for this donation. And so that was what you said you wanted last time. So I'm going to err on the side of caution and assume that's what you want this time too. In fact, I'll go a step further than that. I'm going to err on the side of of, uh, caution and assume that's what you want every single time. So if there ever comes a time when, you know, you're like, when you're okay with me saying, yeah, and you can tell them that I donated, you know, this many dollars, then hey, please do, you know, include that in there. But otherwise, I think the safe thing to do is just acknowledge that a financial contribution of some kind was made by you, but otherwise leave it at that. I think that's probably, I think that's probably the, the uh, smart way to, to do it. So, uh, but like I say, I mean, if, if your preference ever changes in the future, just let me know and I'll be happy to, to say what the dollar amount is. But uh, the point is, Doug, thank you very much. Again, for if I've got this right, I mean, I don't think you were a listener of mine from day one, but you were a pretty early adopter. You know, my memory of it is you started listening, I think, the same year that I launched the show. And I launched the show in August of 2013. So if you just do some quick math, what what you realize is you found my show pretty quickly when when you think about it. So anyway, so thank you for that. Thank you also for just being a cool guy and always have something, always having something funny to say on a Facebook. And again, in this case, for sending me a little bit of your hard earned, uh, hard earned money. Um, and, uh, you know, this is going to be, you know, something I can use to, to take a uh, wifey out for a, uh, a pretty nice little dinner. So, you know, a, a decent one anyway and so you know we're definitely not eating you know uh ramen noodles so uh that's that's gonna be pretty good and uh doug we've got you to thank for that so thank you very much i again i appreciate you taking the time to listen to my show i appreciate you being just a really cool guy in general and of course i also appreciate you um sending me uh this uh this donation you know it's just it's it's really cool of you to do that and um, uh, it's just, this is something that, you know, it, it means a lot to me on, on a, a personal level. And, uh, you know, it's also important for me that I let you know that uh, I just, I've always thought that uh, you're just a really cool guy, you know. So um, anyway, and so I think this is uh, actually going on a little bit longer than I originally intended. But anyway, there you go. You know, Doug, uh, a little bit of bonus content that you guys probably wouldn't have otherwise, courtesy of Doug Meacham. So if you like everything that you've just heard, uh, you see Doug Meacham on Facebook somewhere, just say, hey man, doing a good job, or whatever. 
So uh, anyway, so I think that's pretty much it for me for right now. So enjoy the rest of the episode. Magnus Punches Reality, presented by Two True Freaks. I'm your host, Magnus, and guys, I think it would be fair to say that the episode that I'm talking about today, the subject matter that I'm talking about today, the episode that I'm releasing today, I've been building up to this, not quite since the beginning of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, but from very, very early on. I, I think it would be fair to say that this has been where my podcast has been going again not since day one but from very early on in the process right you see guys when when i first launched trennis magnus punches reality i had a certain structure that i was using as my release schedule i I had six episodes where i talked about whatever i wanted then there would be an episode of me and Chris Honeywell hanging out together talking about uh, the uh, DC Paradox Press line of big books. And then the last episode in the cycle would be something to do with Star Wars. And then I start the process all over again with six more episodes about whatever I want. Another episode with Honeywell and the big, uh, the big book of whatever. And then more Star Wars stuff, etc, etc, right? And... What happened was I was invited to join the Two True Freaks podcast network and I didn't want to have a a regular uh, Star Wars episode because at least to me that felt a little too similar to the Two True Freaks Star Wars Monthly Monday. And it's not like anybody ever sat me down and talked about it and said, yeah, you know, I'd really rather you not do this. Nobody ever said anything like that to me. This was a decision I made entirely on my own, in a vacuum with zero feedback, all right? That was just what felt right to me. Well, something had to take the place of the Star Wars episodes, and so I gave it some thought, tried to figure out what a good replacement might be, and what I eventually realized was, I don't... I'm not really ashamed of the first episode of Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, wherein I talked about Smallville. 
I'm not ashamed of that episode, but the fact is, when I started thinking about it, Smallville had a lot more uh, depth and merit than I was able to devote to it in just one episode. And so I thought, well, maybe what I can do is replace the Star Wars feature with a Smallville feature. And so that's what I did. And as I was not even planning this stuff out, I was just trying to find a vague structure for everything. You know, the release of the Smallville episodes, but also I would say the storytelling structure, the narrative structure of Smallville itself. What I realized was Smallville basically can get divided up into three different phases. You've got seasons one through Mighty Three, seasons Dreaded Four through Sainted uh, Season Seven, and then from there, seasons eight, nine, and ten, that's phase three. So phase one, phase two, phase three, right? And even among that, what I realized was, you know what? The Dreaded Season 4 aside, my favorite era of Smallville is actually Phase 2, from Seasons Dreaded 4 through Seasons Sainted 7, right? That's my favorite era of the show, but even among that, my favorite season of Smallville is actually the Sainted Season 7. And when I really started thinking about it, the season that I'm most excited about talking about when it comes to Smallville is the, the Sainted 7th season. You know, that's... I don't know why. Well, actually, I do know why, but it's more dramatic if I say I don't know why. Actually, I know exactly why I love the Sainted Season 7 so much. And we're going to be getting into that as, as we go along. But for right now, guys, I think it would be accurate to say that every single thing that I've ever done on Trinus Magnus Punches Reality, no matter how tangential to Smallville it may have been, no matter how completely unrelated to Smallville it might have been, everything has been building up to this one episode that you're listening to right now, you know? Guys, this is it. The Sainted Season 7. There is so much awesome here, I barely even know where to begin, so maybe what I'll do is just go chronologically. As a lot of you probably know, the dreaded fourth season of Smallville left a pretty bad taste in my mouth. I've said it a million times now, but it's, it's worth repeating that I felt completely totally betrayed by the dreaded fourth season. Thing is, though, it started off on a pretty strong note, I'd say. The first few episodes of the dreaded season four gave us all, I think, a sense of false security, or rather, a false sense of security about the remainder of the dreaded fourth season and how great it was going to be. We went into the season expecting more stuff, like crusade and transference and instead what we got were episodes like spell and sacred so yes i felt let down i felt betrayed and as i've said before that colored a lot of my opinions about the fifth and sixth seasons at the time that those episodes aired but guys time has a has a way of healing all wounds. And so, by the end of the sixth season, by which I mean Smallville's shippiest season, I'd started making peace with the show. Now, don't misunderstand me. I don't overlook what happened back in the dreaded season four. Nothing has been forgiven. 
what was happening and all that was happening was that I was starting to make peace with Smallville as a show once again. <clears throat> now, as was usual, spoilers and scoops and all that stuff leaked during the summer of 2007. Now, before the sixth season, which was Smallville's shippiest season, incidentally, uh, before the sixth season kicked off, it became generally known that Oliver Queen was coming to Smallville, and at first, a lot of the reaction to that news, this Oliver Queen business, a lot of the reaction to that was negative. And even now, the Green Arrow on Smallville has a lot of detractors, but he eventually won over, I would say, most people. Even so, a lot of the negative reaction came from Green Arrow making his public debut before Superman does, and honestly, that didn't really bother me, especially since Green Arrow started off as a thief rather than an out-and-out -out superhero. And then there's the tired argument that Oliver Queen, in his screen time, took attention away from Clark. Now, that's always baffled me, as Smallville's an ensemble piece with a fairly standard-length television season. Oliver Queen was gone by the halfway point of that season, and it's not like he appeared in every single episode before he departed. So I never really saw what the problem was there, but still, his, detra his detractors were out there. Still are, in fact. And to kind of tie it back to the subject at hand, in a kind of similar way, during the summer of 2007, word eventually leaked out that Kara Zor-El was coming to Smallville. And yes, that's how the character's name is pronounced. Her name rhymes with Kara. Not, or rather, <clears throat> her name rhymes with, Kara's name rhymes with Sarah. It does not rhyme with Mara, or Lara, or whatever else. So, the chick's name is Kara. I don't care what some stupid TV show going today thinks. The, the character's name is Kara. It is pronounced Kara. Just deal with it. Anyway. So, like I say, word eventually leaked out that Kara Zorel was going to be coming to Smallville, and once again, the reaction was mixed, at best. This time because it was yet another character who would take yet more attention away from Clark, and probably even fly before he does. So, yet more people were doing yet more whining and complaining about yet more guest stars on Smallville. Now, <clears throat> I bring up... Uh, Green Arrow, and Kara, to make a point. When, when Green Arrow was, con, was confirmed to be a guest star for the sixth season, guys, I truly did not care, okay? I wasn't excited, nor was I angry. I wasn't nervous, nothing like that, okay? I just noted it in passing. Wow, Green Arrow's coming to Smallville, whatever. Cool, I guess. And really, that's about it. Kara's different. When word came out that she was joining the show for the sainted seventh season, boys and girls, I was truly interested. And that's when it hit me that I'd started coming to terms with Smallville. Maybe the pain of the dreaded season four had started to go down. Or maybe it was just that the pain of Superman Returns hurt far more than anything that Smallville 
could ever throw at me. I don't know. All I can say is, by the time that news was starting to come out about the Sainted Season 7, I'd simmered down a lot. And now, I've said over and over again that with Phase 2, we, as viewers, are in Smallville's cinematic prime right now. The costumes, the color palettes, the lighting, the cinematography, everything about Smallville is awesome now. And my view is that this has been true ever since the fifth season. But The Sainted Season 7 is where Smallville truly peaked, as far as visuals are concerned. By this point in the show's run, it was utterly commonplace for the show to be like watching a comic book. Smallville never did as good as it, uh, or rather, it never looked as good as it did during The Sainted Season 7. And <clears throat> I would say that for the most part, it had never looked this good again either. But I'll get into that after The Sainted Season 7. Now, on that note, I've said before that Smallville's been primarily a visually driven show up to now. It's not that the writing isn't important. The entire point of these retrospectives that I do is to show just how strong Smallville's writing always was. But when push came to shove, Smallville was a show that rose and fell on the strength of the visuals. And there are instances where that was a major problem, especially in the first season. Now, I'm not bashing on the first season. Totally the opposite. I love the first season of Smallville. But at the same time, guys, I got to be honest. The writing in the first season wasn't as good, even as it would be just a year later. On top of that, though, Smallville hadn't really defined its own visual identity just yet in season one. So you could fairly argue that the first season of the show truly was the worst of both worlds. But all of that fades from memory when it comes to the sainted season seven. The show is just gorgeous to look at now. And the writing's improved a lot, even since the second season. And so because of all of that, I regard the Sainted Season 7 as Smallville's visual zenith. This is Al Goff and Miles Miller at their absolute peak. And that's why it's a real shame that the Sainted Season 7 was hampered by the Writers Guild strike. Now, I won't argue the merits of the strike, one way or the other. Partly it's because I don't care about that, but mostly it's because that's kind of out of scope for what this retrospective is supposed to be. What I will say is you can't really argue that the strike didn't have a major impact on how the Sainted Season 7 played out. Obviously there are storylines that weren't paced out as well as they, as they probably would have been, if Goff and Miller had a full and uninterrupted season to work with. On top of that, several episodes from the Sainted Season 7 just aren't as strong as they would have been otherwise, because those scripts were, they were rushed through the uh, writer's room rather than getting the extra two, maybe three, maybe four drafts that they would have gotten under normal circumstances. Even so, I'd argue that Smallville's Sainted Season 7 got off easier than a lot of other shows did.
Heroes Season 2, I'm looking right in your direction. Another issue here is that back at the beginning of the sixth season, which was Smallville's shippiest season, by the way, I pointed out that I think Smallville had ex- had exceeded the original five-season plan that Goff and Miller originally developed when they first pitched the show to the WB. So when it came time to start working on the sixth season, Goff and Miller had to create a completely original storyline from the ground up. Now, assuming that I'm right about that, and I believe there's enough circumstantial evidence to suspect that I am, but assuming that I'm right about that, obviously the same is no less true of the sainted season seven. Goff and Miller developed storylines and character motivations during the sainted season seven that at best had only been hinted at before. But the other thing here, and this will become more obvious as we work through the sainted season seven retrospective, the other thing here is that this sainted season ups the ante on comic book stylizations and tropes. From seasons one through five, Smallville was careful to steer clear of too much overt Superman iconography. But Goff and Miller broke away from that in a big bad way in the sixth season, which was Smallville's shippiest season, by showing that the House of L family crest, which is to say the Superman symbol. There's nothing quite that obvious happening in the Sainted Season 7, but we do get to see Kara. And this is really the first time that Clark's come face-to-face with a real deal, true blue, flesh-and-blood Kryptonian. Or at least one who doesn't die immediately, anyway. And I think it's pretty evident that Goff and Miller were working under some kind of moratorium on showing other survivors from Krypton besides Clark for any extended period of time. Kara's the first character that really challenges that. Another issue in all this, though, is this sainted, se- uh, this sainted season marks the first time that Clark is presented with a real choice. Okay? He can continue hiding out on the Kent farm, or in some way or another, he can become a symbol of hope. Now, this has been touched upon in previous seasons, it's true, but it was always something sort of done in the abstract. It was presented as a choice that Clark would have to make someday in the future. Well, the sainted seventh season is someday. The sainted season seven is the future. For the first time, Clark is faced with circumstances where he can keep a low profile and stay off of everybody's radar, or he can, in some way or another, go public with his powers and abilities. I'll tackle this subject in greater depth as we move along, but Clark doesn't agree to leave his life on the farm behind, at least during this sainted season. But it's interesting to note that he doesn't completely shut the door on operating openly with his abilities in some capacity or another. Now, that's all just background stuff, though. My point is that for the first time in a long time, I was ready for a Smallville season premiere. 
whatever the reasons might have been, I covered a lot of ground as a person and as a fan. I was primed for Bizarro, the Sainted Season 7 premiere, and it didn't disappoint. So, on that note, Episode 1, Bizarro, picks up pretty much exactly where Phantom from the sixth season left off. Bizarro comes to town and wrecks shop on everything, while Lex is arrested by Smallville Sheriff's deputies and then nearly drowns in the flood, but he's rescued by Kara Zorel. Meanwhile, Lana is still alive. <sighs> now, Bizarro as a character allows for a fair amount of deeper themes and implications. Bizarro's not kidding around, guys. He really does have Clark's DNA, thoughts, and memories. He's still a zoner. He still has that life in his background, but now it's tempered by the love and support that Clark grew up in and the love that he has for others. That's why he wants to take over living Clark's life. He wants what Clark has, and in a weird kind of way, that's something that Bizarro and Lex actually have in common, believe it or not. Now, in comics, villains from different rogues galleries have a funny way of getting paired together based on their similarities. And so, because of that, it's fairly common in comics, and God knows other media, to see Batmite and Mixius Pitalik teaming up together. Or maybe they have a rivalry of their own in Batman and Superman team-up stories. What the reader is supposed to infer, I think, is that Batmite and Mixius Pitalik are basically two sides of the same coin. But personally, I've never really seen it that way. I mean, yeah, they both have magical abilities and they both have pretty much unlimited control over reality as the characters know it. But as characters, I would say that Batmite and Mixus Pitalik don't really have too much in common with one another. No, my friends, I submit to you that it's Batmite and Bizarro who are analogs to one another in Batman and Superman's respective rogues galleries. In comics, anyway. Batmite is the ultimate Batman fanboy. Batman is everything that Batmite wants to be, and it takes magical fucking abilities for him to get there, which incidentally says a lot about Batman's supposed credibility, but anyway, I digress. On Superman's side, you have Bizarro. And I'm talking about pre-crisis comic book Bizarro here, guys, like Bronze Age Bizarro. This guy is so inspired by Superman, he builds his own fucking planet to protect, all right? Bizarro is more affected by Superman's perfection and heroism than anybody else. Now, Bizarro's not perfect, and he makes no bones about that either. He well understands that he's an imperfect duplicate. Do you understand me? An imperfect duplicate. Outwardly, comic book Bizarro only mentions the imperfect part. Go back and read his pre-crisis stories at, when you get some time and see for yourself. He's always talking about how he's not perfect. He's not Superman. He's nowhere near Superman's level and all that stuff. He says that as a not very subtle reminder to the entire universe 
that they should keep their expectations of him in check. But his actions tell a very different story. In the pre-crisis comics, Bizarro wears Superman's uniform. And yes, he tries to be Superman. He tries to rescue people. He tries to make a difference. But in the end, he always falls short. Sometimes very short. Bizarro is very well aware of Superman, not just as a man, but also as an ideal. Superman's what everyone should try like hell to be. And that's not lost on Bizarro. Everything that he does, again, in the pre-crisis era, everything that Bizarro does is an attempt to live up to everything that's awesome about Superman. Bizarro is an imperfect duplicate of, uh, of Superman. Now, in the comics, Bizarro always talks about the imperfect part, but every action he makes shows us that what he really is motivated by is the duplicate part. Bizarro knows he was created to be Superman. He was intended to be an exact replica of Superman. But every decision that Bizarro makes, everything that Bizarro attempts to do, the guy's entire miserable fucking existence, it's all a constant reminder to him that he's a failure. The single purpose for which he's created is always going to escape him. He will never be able to fulfill the only reason that he was created in the first place. Bizarro's always reaching out to the ideal of Superman. He's always trying to grab it, to achieve it, and he always fails, and he knows it. Bizarro tells everybody that he's imperfect in the hopes that they won't remember that he's supposed to be a duplicate. That's the pre-crisis Bizarro right there, in a nutshell. And I think the reason that fans gravitate toward that version of uh, of Bizarro is because whether they can articulate it or not, there's something that's in its own weird kind of way. There's something a little inspirational about Bizarro. <clears throat> he always tries. He never gives up. His life is a living, walking, breathing testament. He's committed himself to an ideal and he won't let anything, least of all his own incompetence, stand in the way. But at the same time, he never succeeds. In fact, Sometimes he falls so fucking far short of the mark that some people think of him as a monster. Bizarro knows what his original purpose was, and he knows that he's never fulfilled it and never will fulfill it. He's a wretched, miserable failure. So Bizarro is simultaneously inspirational in a kind of fucked up way. And he's also arguably the saddest, most tragic character in the entire DC universe, precisely because he can't be what he wants to be. That, I think, is why a lot of fans are invested in Bizarro, especially pre-crisis Bizarro. That weird, fucked-up mix of pity and inspiration is what's key to Bizarro's success, at least in the comics. But that's not really the character that we get in Smallville. The Smallville version of Bizarro took a lot of heat from some people for being so different from the comic book version. And to be fair to the haters and the bashers, if you think of this character only as Bizarro, specifically any version of Bizarro that you've seen in the comics, well, it's not really a perfect match, now is it? But when you realize that this character is a composite of 
I would say, pre-crisis Bizarro and the sand creature from the Kryptonite Nevermore story that kicked off the Bronze Age, it lines up a lot better. There are too many similarities between Smallville's Bizarro and the sand creature for it to be a coincidence. The sand creature wants to be Superman, not just live up to Superman's ideal and his reputation, but the sand creature wants to supplant Superman as Earth's greatest hero. He wants to be everything that Superman is and everything that Superman isn't. And that also describes the Smallville version of Bizarro. He wants Clark's life, his family, his friends, his love life, all of it. In his view, Clark's squandered and pissed away every good thing he ever had going for himself. Bizarro looks at Clark with open fucking contempt because of what Clark has denied himself. Bizarro in the pre-crisis comics wants to live up to everything that Superman represents. Bizarro in Smallville wants to take for himself everything that rightfully belongs to Clark. Now, I see enough similarity uh, between the Smallville Bizarro and the comic book Bizarro to justify using the name. But there's way too much sand creature influence on the Smallville Bizarro to ever think that it was all one big coincidence, you know? Still, there's no denying that the two versions of Bizarro are indeed quite different from one another. And by that I mean pre-crisis Bizarro, you know, comic book Bizarro, and Smallville Bizarro, you know? And honestly, I'm fine with that. For one thing, Bizarro never really struck me as one of those essential characters of the Superman mythos. I just don't think that he's all that important in the big scheme of things. I mean, if you screw Lex Luthor up, there's probably no saving your version of the Superman legend. But if you screw up Bizarro, I mean, seriously, who cares, you know? And so I guess what I'm saying here is that abject fidelity to the source material is less of an issue when it comes to Bizarro, but even when it was the end-all be-all for Bizarro, or I should say even if it was the end-all be-all for Bizarro, I'd probably still be tempted to excuse the Smallville version of the character because of how well it was executed. The other aspect that's in play here, though, is that Bizarro says that Clark wonders what mankind would do without Clark there to protect them. There are a few ways of looking at that. One of them is that Clark worries about what might happen to the world if he's not around to save it. And considering that Clark has faced off at this point with crazy witches, with Zod, and with Phantom Zone escapees, he's right to worry about that. But the other angle is that Bizarro could have meant that Clark looks down his nose a little bit at humanity. That for whatever reason, probably because it's another thing to bitch and complain about, this kind of misanthropic interpretation is what a lot of Smallville's whiners and haters have decided to, to run with. It's up for grabs, but I tend to think that Clark's thoughts that Bizarro is commenting on there come from a place of compassion, especially since... Bizarro says all of that right after Clark tells him that he needs to go back to the dam to save everybody. So there's that. The other thing is that Clark identifies with the human race. Damn the torpedoes and full speed ahead. What was I supposed to do? Let him kill every host he inhabited? 
That is one of the hardest trials you will face, Kal-El. While your humanity is your greatest strength, it is also your greatest vulnerability. Well, it's part of who I am, and it's who I want to be. I'm proud that I was raised to care about people, and I am not going to apologize for it anymore. That's been made clear in other episodes, but here, here we've got Clark reaffirming his human citizenship. He sees humans in exclusively positive terms. Now, I want you guys to mark this moment. I want you to remember this, because we're going to be coming back to this much later on. But for right now, Clark himself has good reason to change his mind. Yeah, well, I guess you deserve a little bit of peace and quiet after sending the evil Bobsy twin to the sunny side of Mars. Who's to say he's any more evil than I am? <laughs> Unless you have a second secret identity that I don't know about, I... Chloe, when I heard about Lana, I went to find Lex. And I wasn't gonna let him leave there alive. The irony is, I think it was the first time I ever really understood Lex. Loving someone is hard, it's, it's difficult. But hate, hate is so clean. Maybe you need to feel this right now. I mean, anger is a natural human emotion. That's just it. It's when that phantom was trying to kill me and I was staring into my own eyes, I saw the monster that I could become if I wanted to. It was a reminder that I am not human. Tell that to every person you've ever saved. Clark, whether you want to see it or not, you're one of us now. And the fact that you're from a galaxy far, far away just adds character. And you know, I'm here. No matter what side of nature or nurture happens to be winning out. It goes both ways, Chloe. Your father would be proud. He did everything he could to prepare you. But bravery is not something you can learn. How much bravery does it take when you're getting pummeled? Kal-El, you could have ignored all the phantoms that escaped the phantom zone. But you chose to take responsibility and stop them. Even one more powerful than you. In a weird way, he may have been right. Maybe I have allowed myself to become weak, caring too much about everything, everyone here. You've learned a lot from your time in Smallville. These people have made you who you are. They won't always be here. Losing Lana has made me realize no matter how close I get, someday they'll all be gone. All the time that I've spent ignoring my destiny, trying to be something I'll never be, 
human. All right, guys, Clark has lost Lana. Or he thinks he has, anyway. Which comes to the same thing in the end. He views losing Lana as a reminder that he's ultimately going to lose everybody. There's a lot that's expressed and implied here. For one thing, Clark doesn't handle loss very well. I've talked about that before, but it's worth repeating here. Clark's put humanity on a pedestal. They're perfect. He has idealized mankind, and he's done that really from day one. And nothing's changed. But for the first time, he's seeing himself as something other than human. You might even say less than human. Grief affects different people in different ways. Loss tends to remind Clark Kent that of just how much an alien he truly is. Another issue here is how this plays into the way that Clark sees Lana. I think it'd be fair to say that he regards Lana as a prize. Yeah, sure, she's a living, breathing person with her own hopes and dreams and fears and whatever else, but at the end of the day, I think Clark views Lana sort of as sort of as an object. She's something to be lost. And he lost her. Clark views Clark's view of Lana is wrong-headed from the outset by virtually any sane definition. Now, true, as a couple, Clark and Lana don't have the same problems and hang-ups that Lex and Lana did. That's for certain. But at the same time, when Lex and, what Lex and Clark have in common is that they view Lana as an object rather than as a person. I think that's a big reason neither of them could ever make it work with her. They treated her like a work of art instead of a human being. And so because of that, neither of them were really able to see how flawed she really is. Or how flawed she's become, anyway. Now, another issue that's going on here is Lois. As far as Clark knows, Lana died back in Phantom. That means that Bizarro thinks that Lana's dead too. So he makes a move on Lois. Bizarro said that he won't make the same mistakes that Clark made. And so one of the first things that he does is try getting into Lois's pants. It's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Now, what's telling here is that Lois doesn't welcome this from, from him. She thinks this is Clark, and she also thinks this isn't acceptable. Not from him. Even so, she's quick to forgive Clark for what she thinks he did. Which is also interesting. Another cool bit of business here is that Lex's introduction to Clark came when he crashed his Porsche off the bridge back in the pilot after which Clark dove into the lake and fished him out. Call it rhyming in the George Lucas sense, but Kara also saves Lex from drowning after the car he's riding in crashes off a bridge. Again, it's just interesting. That's all I'm saying. Speaking of which, Kara's ship being present on Earth, hidden for years, and trapped underwater comes from the comics of this era. Jeff Loeb had written a story for Superman Batman called The Supergirl from Krypton, which brought Kara Zor-El into what was modern continuity, using more or less this same trick. As a production, Jeff Loeb's always had a big 
influence on Smallville, even before he joined the staff. So it shouldn't be a surprise that Goff and Miller looked to a Jeff Loeb comic book of some kind to figure out a way to bring Kara into Smallville. Again, the usual meme goes that Smallville pretty much disowned the comics from which it supposedly originated, but story elements like this are a good reminder that the haters don't really know what they're talking about. But anyway, this is a pretty clever way to riff on the comics and also introduce Kara to Lex. Now, speaking of Lex, he's the gold standard of remorse and repentance. God, that's a, I don't know what just happened. That's always a hard word to say. Not repentance. Uh, so let's just try it again. Lex is the gold standard of remorse and penitence here in Bizarro. Uh, well, whatever. I guess that's good enough. That, that seems out of character for Lex, considering that he was willing to kill innocent people back in Prototype. But there are two things that are going on here. First, Lex had fundamentally honorable intentions. He wanted to develop an army of superhumans in order to repel a potential, as far as he knows, a potential alien invasion. He used completely evil methods to get there, but his ultimate goal is, when you think about it, pretty laudable. When Clark saved Lex back in the pilot, Lex developed a whole new perspective from how he started out. He originally saw Lionel banishing him to Smallville as a kind of punishment or condemnation, but because of Clark's rescue for the first time, he saw Smallville as an opportunity. When Lex was resuscitated in the pilot, he came back as a changed man. Same thing here. Kara's rescue at the dam has given Lex a different outlook than he had before. He sees all the horrible things that he's done for what they are, and he wants to make amends for them. Apart from lining up with the pilot, it also lines up with Lionel's prison term back in the dreaded season four. Now, true, Lionel spent a lot more time in lockup than Lex ultimately will, and that's not a major spoiler, so don't gripe at me for spoiling ahead here, but they both face arrest for charges of murder, and both of them see it as a punishment that they very much deserve. Now, since I'm talking about Luther's here, Lionel's in this episode only long enough to get dragged off and kidnapped by somebody. Big things come out of that, both in terms of character and in terms of story, but we don't really get too much else about that going on here in this episode. Now, speaking of teases, Chloe doesn't talk a whole lot about her meteor power, and I think it would be fair to say that she's not even completely honest with Clark about it. And to be fair, this is something that she's lived in fear of for a pretty long time now. To me, it stands to reason that she'd want to keep it to herself until she can get her head around just what exactly happened to her. Guys, understand, she didn't mean to save Lois's life last season at, uh, in uh, Phantom, the uh, season finale from last, from last season. She didn't mean to save Lois's life. She had no idea what her power was or how to activate it. She wasn't ready for any of this. It took her completely by surprise and she needs time to work it out on her own before she starts blabbing too much to other people about it. And me, I buy that. Now, there's obviously Kara Zor-El that we need to talk about. And guys, here's the thing. 
We never learn her name in this episode. All we can guess, based on what's provided in the episode, is that she has superpowers of some kind. There's a good chance that she's Kryptonian, but considering that most of the Kryptonians that we've seen in Smallville up to this point aren't exactly on the side of the angels, necessarily, this Kryptonian chick hanging around Smallville is not to be immediately assumed to be a good thing. And this goes back to a common point that I try to raise when it comes to Smallville. All through the show, people judge Clark's actions and words through the lens, I guess the more holistic lens, of the Superman mythos. But that's not really appropriate considering where Clark is in his life right now. How fair is it to judge somebody through the lens of a parent for things they said and did when they were 17, long before they ever became a parent? And it's wrong. It's stupid. But this, it, this same thing happens with Clark here on Smallville all the time. A lot of the bashers and the haters picked on Clark because, or rather before he was Superman, because he'd do things that Superman probably wouldn't. And if you don't see the idiocy there, I can't help you. Now, same thing goes for other characters. Back in Season 6, which I don't know if I've ever mentioned this or not, Season 6 was Smallville's shippiest season. Back in Season 6, Oliver Queen was evaluated in the context of being a superhero, back when he was not a superhero, but was in fact a high-tech thief who stole from other thieves, sold the loot, and then donated the money to various and sundry uh, charities. To a lesser degree, the same shit happened with Kara. She was analyzed as Supergirl in spite of the fact that she's not Supergirl yet. But more than that, these things all ignore how little information tends to be presented about these characters when they're first introduced. We fill in the gaps subconsciously because we're comic book fans, but ignorant observers probably had a very different perspective on Oliver when he was first introduced, and also on Kara here in Bizarro. Now, apart from all the heavy analysis stuff, there are just a lot of really cool moments here in Bizarro as an episode, Clark rescues a boy, his father, and their dog from a flood. He opens up with his heat vision like he never has before, and he evaporates the, on, the oncoming just rush of water. Now, I don't care that this is totally impossible from a scientific point of view. I don't care that there's no way to do something like that without incinerating the forest in the surrounding area. I don't care that the more efficient way for Clark to have rescued the family was to super speed them to higher, to higher ground. This sequence is just damn cool to watch. But the other neat thing that's going on here is that Clark hangs around just long enough to smile at the boy, nod his head, and then speed off. It's just awesome. Now, I said a while ago that the Sainted Season 7 was the first time that Clark would be presented with a choice to stay in hiding on the Kent farm or in some manner or another to go public. Now, it's no spoiler to say that Clark doesn't go public this season. In fact, in many ways, he chooses to stay on the farm. But what's interesting is that for the first time, 
he doesn't completely shut the door on operating in public. Clark could have sped uh, sped off before the the uh, little boy registered that Clark had ever even been there. But he didn't. He turned to face the boy, smiled, waited a minute, and then sped away. Now, that may seem like small potatoes. It may seem like a throwaway moment. But guys, this is fucking huge. Clark realized he'd probably never see this kid ever again. So why not take that extra second to reassure him that the danger that he was facing is over now? We all know what choices Clark ultimately makes this sainted season. My point, though, is that moments like this one show us that Clark doesn't completely turn his back on the possibility of becoming, to some degree or another, a public figure. Now, the next part coming up here isn't majorly relevant, but we see more of Gina, uh, Lex's personal as, uh, assistant, in episodes to come. Here, all she does is tell Lex that she can have him out of the United States jurisdiction inside of two hours. But she'll come up again in future episodes, so just keep keep Gina in, in mind here, guys. Now, another aspect of this episode that's going on here is that Clark battles with Bizarro. Thanks to the Zoners, Clark's becoming accustomed to fighting people who are just about as powerful as he is, more or less. So, in a sense, he's as ready to fight someone like Bizarro as he's ever gonna be by now. So because of that, their their fights are pretty much evenly matched. Until Clark goes on the offensive and gets the fertilizer punched out of him in what's left of the uh, bunker inside of Reeves Dam, and that, I think, is just about the time that he understands his mistake. Clark realizes that the sun is Bizarro's poison, but it's Clark's own strength. And that's when Clark decides to use tactics to win the fight. He stands in the sunlight and forces Bizarro to come to him. Clark takes another shot from Bizarro and then returns fire by super punching him through the roof of the bunker. And for the first time ever in the history of, of this show, here's where we, where we hear Superman's new theme. now's a good time to talk about Smallville's hero theme. Now, I use it for the intro and outro of these uh, of these episodes, and the reason for that is because Smallville's Superman uh, hero theme is awesome. Now, why was it even necessary to create a new uh, a new Superman hero theme for the show, you might ask? Well, for one thing, it had cost a fortune to lock to uh, license the uh, John Williams hero theme from Superman the movie, especially since doing so would be an ongoing thing. Uh, guys, we're talking possibly about hundreds of thousands of dollars that could be better spent elsewhere. So really, it comes down to a choice between hearing bits and pieces of the Williams theme or 
well, I don't know, getting a few extra action sequences or some on-location shooting rather than a set. I think Goff and Miller made the right choice from a financial standpoint when they decided to create their own Superman hero theme. But I also think they made the right choice from a creative point of view. My contention is that the Williams theme isn't appropriate for all things Superman. Now, don't get me wrong. The Williams main title works great in Superman the movie. But this idea that the Williams that the Williams theme is perfect and it's irreplaceable well, I think it can be replaced. Now, the naysayers typically point to the main hero themes from Fleischer, Adventures of Superman, Lois and Clark, Superman the Animated Series, and other types of shows as straw man arguments. You see, those themes aren't as powerful or epic or majestic as the Williams stuff. And, you know, then as now, my answer to that is that the, the Fleischer theme... The Fleischer Superman theme was concocted in the era of movie serials that most of us regard as pretty cheesy these days. That, that Fleischer theme was meant to emphasize the action and adventure aspects of Superman as a comic book character. It was perfect for that type of early onset Golden Age Superman. It's kind of serial-esque, but not really. But that's really about as much as you can say for it. I like it, but it's it's meant to work in a certain in a certain type of idiom, right? The Adventures of Superman uh, theme from the 1950s was meant to get every pit, uh, every kid's pulse up and going. It's running with excitement. Superman's about to do his thing in a kid-friendly way in the 1950s. It's this grand, sweeping piece of music that's done on a 1950s TV budget for a 1950s TV show. It's perfect for what it strives to do. But the type of medium that the Adventures of Superman hero theme is intended for has certain limitations in terms of tone and style and other things. Lois and Clark's theme was equal parts superhero excitement as well as tender, tender love theme. It's both at the same time, and like everything else, it's perfect for what it's intended to be. Lois and Clark isn't a huge, sprawling, superhero epic that Superman the movie is. It's a small and intimate story about two complicated people leading huge and complicated lives in the context of a moonlighting type of story. It, Lois and Clark never tries to be what Superman the movie is. Now, Superman the Animated Series, that theme was partly a throwback to the Fleischer theme, and it's partly a companion to Shirley Walker's Batman the Animated Series theme. So again, it's supposed to be vaguely retro. And in fact, it's not meant to be as huge and iconic as the John Williams uh, Superman theme is supposed to be. So what's my point here in talking about all these different Superman shows? All of those themes worked perfectly for what they were intended to do, but none of them were really intended to hit the same type of tone and style as the Williams theme, which I think was, you know, the Williams theme was ultimately meant to emphasize Superman's stature as a figure of myth and legend in a basically real world. In the Donnerverse, Superman's literally a dream come true. Donner's so-called verisimilitude 
is what makes the Williams theme work. But the grandeur and the power of the Williams theme, I just don't, I don't care what anybody says. I don't think that works in a universe where Superman shares the spotlight with kryptonite freaks, Martians, Phantom Zone escapees, and other superheroes. Smallville's new Superman theme has to emphasize the the wonder and heroism of Superman, but do it in a way that's friendly to the more fantasy-oriented tone that Smallville's been increasingly shooting for over the past several seasons. And it not only succeeds, but it proves that, at least for me, it proves that the John Williams Superman theme doesn't have a monopoly on powerful and mythic Superman themes. Now, as you might expect, we're going to hear a lot more of Smallville's Superman theme throughout the remainder of the series. So there's something to look forward to. Something else that's really interesting actually happens in the opening credit sequence. From seasons, seasons one through six, the credits open first with Tom Welling as the star of the show, Kristen Krug, and then Michael Rosenbaum. In that order. The Sainted Season 7's different inasmuch as it opens with Welling, as usual, but then switches by crediting Rosenbaum as second, and then Krug as third. Who knows what behind-the-scenes negotiations with Rosenbaum's side enable that to happen? Don't know, don't care. All I can tell you is that I noticed this change right away, and it's always been fascinating to me. Now, Bizarro as an episode ends with Kelly Clarkson sober, playing over a montage of different characters, mulling over their fates and their destinies and all of that fun stuff. Chloe burns her own death certificate because what we're supposed to infer from this, I think, is that she refuses to deal with the fact, first, that she has a meteor power, and second, that her power is probably the only reason that Lois is still alive. The only reason that Chloe's her, Chloe herself is still alive is also because of this meteor power, and I think it would be fair to say that she's struggling to come to terms with all of that. Lex is escorted into lockup while he uh, awaits bail or trial or whatever his future may bring. He's stoic in the face of his punishment. He's ready to face up to what he's done. Except he really isn't facing up to what he's done. Lex knows he's innocent of Lana's murder. So he may just see this as karma for all the other shit that he's pulled. But I don't think so. I think Lex believes that Lana is dead. He knows that he didn't do it, but that's probably about it. What he does know is that he victimized her all the way through the sixth season. Which, did you know that the sixth season is Smallville's shippiest season? I'm not sure if you were aware of that. So, I think Lex views being convicted of her murder. It may not be a, uh, it may not be perfect justice because he's not guilty of her murder, but it may be perfect insofar as penance is concerned. So, I think you could fairly say Lex doesn't regret killing people last season. To him, that's collateral damage. It's all a means to an end. But he victimized Lana, and he knows it. So, facing charges for her murder is what he deserves, even though he knows damn good and well he's innocent, at least of that much. Lana comes next. She's wandering through the streets of Shanghai in disguise, and at first blush, 
That seems kind of like an odd place for her to hide, but I happen to think it's the perfect choice. Lana's familiar with Shanghai. She's been there before. She spent most of Sacred from the dreaded Season 4 in Shanghai, so she probably knows a place or two in Shanghai where she can lay low. The other thing is that it's perfect for her. I mean, who the hell would ever think to look for Lana in Shanghai, of all places? The only connection she has to that place isn't a very happy memory, and so most people wouldn't think to look for her there. I mean, it, just to kind of put it in perspective, it'd be like me choosing to hide out in Detroit or something. So, then it's Clark's turn. He's got a lot of shit to brood over after everything that's happened in this episode, not least of which is Lana, who's staring at the very same moon that he is on the other side of the world. Finally, we see Kara chilling out atop the uh, water tower overlooking the entire town of Smallville. She puts on her bracelet and she flies off. She zips through the sky behind the water tower, circles back, soars past the talon, and then whooshes right by the camera. <laughs> it's just fucking cool. And like I said, the entire time all this is going on, uh, Sober, the Kelly Clarkson song, is playing in the background. And it's been a long time since I talked about the pop music on Smallville, but man, this song is awesome. Now, yes, I'm, I'm totally metal, alright? I'm more metal than you ever dreamed of being and blah 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 blah. But how can you not dig this song? So anyway, by the time the end credits rolled for Bizarro, it really felt like a vindication. I hadn't been this excited about a Smallville premiere since Crusade from the dreaded fourth season. And we all know how that turned out, but this truly felt different, alright? It, it really felt like big shit was going to happen this season. And without going into spoiler territory, I think it'd be fair to say that I was right. None of the characters will be the same when all is said and done at the end of this Sainted Season. And in a lot of ways, the Sainted Season 7 is Smallville as a TV series saying goodbye to a lot of things that it's depended on to tell stories, establish conflicts, build subplots, develop characters, and all that other stuff. But before things change for good at the end of this season, there are a few more mysteries to solve, a few more questions to answer, a, f a few more relationships to explore. And while all that's happening, again, the show looks fucking amazing. And that's a good thing because there are moments where the WGA strike forced some, I think, occasionally weak material right out the door, and those things became Smallville episodes this season. If the writing isn't always up to scratch this season, and I think it'd be fair to say that it's not always up to scratch this, this season, at least the show never looked better. Now, like I said, for most of Smallville's run up to and including this season, it's been a visually driven TV show. But that's not to say that the writing has never been important. Quite the opposite, in fact. And in my opinion, The Sainted Season 7 is ultimately what proves how much Smallville has a, just a tragically unsung record of rock-solid writing and characterization. Now, it is fair to say that Clark's the major beneficiary here. I don't want to spoil what's still to come, but this sainted season's truly the last that we see of Clark as we knew him in the pilot. When the eighth season kicks off, 
Clark will still have hang-ups and other bullshit that he needs to sort through before he's ready to put on the cape. But at the same time, he'll have already put aside so much baggage and other problems that it's impossible to argue that he hasn't grown in incredibly profound ways as a character. As all that's going on, though, he won't be the only one who's grown noticeably. Like I said, other characters are going to have a lot to show for themselves once this sainted season ends. And one of the most obvious, believe it or not, is Lana Lang. She's, re she's revealed to still be alive here in Bizarro, but we haven't seen too much of what she took away from the sixth season. Not yet, anyway. But that'll become clearer and clearer as the Sainted Season 7 goes on. But at least at the outset, we know that she wasn't kidding around when she said it was time for her to leave Smallville back in Phantom. She said it, and she meant it. Now, Lex... Lex has some major changes to go through this sainted season as well, all right? In fact, there's a good argument that, of all the characters, he grows and changes the most. It was part of the sainted season seven, uh, season seven's earliest uh, press and PR stuff that this would be Michael Rosenbaum's last season as a series regular on Smallville. And for his own part, Rosenbaum promised that he would never come back to the series. And not from a sense of malice, either. I think his reference point was, and I think he even said this over and over again, was that he'd said what he had to say about Lex Luthor as a character, and now he wanted to play other roles. Now, the guy's an actor, so it makes sense that he wants to do different things. Actors are gypsies by nature. They tend to thrive on playing different types of characters. Monotony is not a comfortable thing for most actors. Now, fans lambasted him at the time, and I'm not going to take sides on that one. I'm just telling you how things were. But from a purely logical standpoint, Rosenbaum's decision to leave the show pretty well simplified what Lex's arc for the Sainted Season 7 would have to be. When you know for a fact that your... Uh, I don't even know how to say it. Your pseudo-villain, your junior villain your villain in training, when you know for a fact that he's leaving your show seemingly forever, the only logical thing to do is to turn that pseudo-villain, that junior villain, that villain in training into a real villain. So it's no spoiler to say, from common sense if nothing else, it's no spoiler to say that this is the sainted season when Lex truly gives in to the dark side. Now, Lots of things are changing with Smallville as a show right now, and a lot more change is on the horizon, too. So now seems like a pretty good time for a recap, I think. The episode Ray Do from the second season doesn't have very many admirers, all right? I'm the guy in the room who loves Ray Do, but most people kind of despise it. They just kind of consider it a major league clunker episode, and certainly, I would be the last person to argue that it's perfect. Still. It did have one really poignant moment. In Ray Du, Mr. Reynolds, which is to say the new principal of Smallville High, assigned Clark a five-page paper describing where he, meaning Clark, pictured himself five years later. Well, now it's five years later. Here in the Sainted Season 7, we see that Lana's undergone a lot of changes. 
So has Lex. So has Martha. Same thing with Lionel. Chloe has definitely grown and matured. Uh, Lois, same thing. In fact, I think it'd be fair to say that virtually everybody on the show has changed drastically since their first appearance. Like I say, even Lois is moving on from being a third-rate hack at the Inquisitor to something bigger by getting a job at the Daily Planet. All those other characters have changed. They've grown. They've matured. But Clark? Eh, less so. He's matured. That much is true. He he took a, a, a more active hand in the last season, that is to say season six, which is to say Smallville Shipia season. He took a more active hand in tracking down the zoners, but his growth has been slower. A lot slower, in fact. Back in Redu from the second season, Clark lived on the farm with his parents and loved Lana from afar. Here in the Sainted Season 7, Clark still lives on the Kent farm, and he still loves Lana. Not too much has changed. We never find out everything that Clark wrote for Mr. Reynolds' assignment back in Ray Du, but Clark figured, among other things, he figured that he'd be in college studying journalism in five years' time. But is that what he's doing right now? Not a bit. This sainted season will show us exactly how far out of his way Clark's gone to not change, to not grow up, to not accept adult responsibilities. We don't get a major glimpse of that stuff here in Bizarro, but as the sainted season 7 progresses, we'll see Clark come face to face with all of his own bullshit. Every single lie he's ever told himself about everything and everyone gets confronted during the sainted season 7. This sainted season forces Clark to stare into a gigantic mirror of himself, and by the end, I think it'd be fair to say that Clark agrees that there's some room for improvement, but that's all in the future. In the here and now, around the time of sainted season 7's premiere, rumors were circulating that Warner Brothers was uh, gearing up to do a Justice League of America film set for release in the summer of 2009. And word round the water cooler was that Tom Welling was going to star in it as Superman. Now, people, this is going to be the only time I'm ever going to discuss this. Normally, I don't talk about gossipy, behind-the-scenes bullshit-type things like this because it's never been completely made public what went on. And ultimately, it didn't affect Smallville as a TV show one bit. Still, if this subject interests you, listen up. Because we'll never speak of it again. Now, the website IESB, that is to say IESB, broke the rumor that Tom Welling had been offered the role of Superman in the JLA movie. And guys, I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. At the time that this was going on, at the time that all of these rumors and stuff were circulating, at the time that everybody on, on the internet was all abuzz about this, I believe this was the original plan. I believed it then, and I believe it now. I've got a theory on how all of this came about. All right. Superman Returns was released in June of 2006, and it promptly tanked it at the box office, right? As I've said before, Superman Returns failed 
at the box office. There's no stupid, goofy accounting you can invent, invent where Superman Returns somehow made money in theaters. It lost money. It lost money in America. It then lost money in foreign markets. Superman Returns was a box office failure. That's the truth. Deal with it. Well, needless to say, that fucked up Warner Brothers' tentpole schedule for the next couple of summers because they've been banking on another Superman film to release as a summer tentpole in 2009. But since Superman Returns lost money, there wasn't very much business sense in letting Brian Singer direct a sequel. Well, as luck would have it, Warner Brothers had a Justice League of America script on tap and ready to go. So they fast-tracked it to replace whatever sequel Brian Singer might have made for Superman in 2009. Now, news about the Justice League movie came out in the spring of 2007, several months before the Sainted Season 7 even began. And when news of the Justice League movie came out online, all by itself, that's when I knew that Warner Brothers had no intention whatsoever of ever creating a sequel to Superman Returns. The sheer fact that the Justice League movie was real and it was happening said everything that needed to be said about Brian Singer's prospects of uh, developing and creating a Superman sequel. Since Warner Brothers wasn't making a sequel to Superman Returns, it made absolutely, positively no sense whatsoever to cast Brandon Routh as Superman, even though he said he was ready, willing, able, and eager to play Superman in the Justice League movie. The whole idea was to put the Superman Returns universe out to pasture, and casting Brandon Routh as Superman would kind of be contrary to that. So, But at the same time, somebody obviously didn't feel comfortable bringing in yet another new actor to play Superman, so in that context... Tom Welling really was the logical choice to talk to, at least to start with, about playing Superman. But was Welling open to wearing a Superman costume? Well, if it meant getting the biggest payday of his entire life, I think he might have at least been willing to give it some thought. Now, obviously, this, this Justice League movie that we're talking about never happened. It was ultimately never made. But even when it looked like it might happen, we already know that Welling was not set to play Superman. So what happened? Well, who knows? Maybe Welling decided once again that he didn't want to wear a Superman outfit. Or maybe they were maybe Welling was trying to negotiate a deal and then the deal just fell apart. Happens all the time. But at a minimum, I don't know about anything else, but at a minimum, I believe that there was real and sincere discussion that was going on between Tom Welling and somebody at Warner Brothers about playing Superman in this Justice League movie. Now, my point is there was always way too much smoke behind this whole Tom Welling Justice League fire for me to ever think that the whole thing was completely made up. Too many angles lined up. Welling took way too many trips to Los Angeles, while Smallville was actively in production in Canada. There was just too much stuff going on to dismiss the idea that he'd been contacted about playing Superman in the JLA movie. 
And all I'm saying is that I, for one, totally believe that Tom Welling was in talks of some kind to play Superman for George Miller's Justice League of America film at least at one point. But it never happened, obviously. And in the end, I think that was ultimately best for Smallville as a TV show and for Superman as a feature film franchise. Don't get me wrong. I've always wanted to see Welling play Superman for real. I think he would have done a hell of a job with it, but some things just weren't meant to be, and maybe this is one of them. By now, it's become pretty apparent that Welling never really wanted to wear the Superman outfit on Smallville. But maybe he would have been willing to wear a Superman outfit if he was getting paid a feature film salary? Maybe? Maybe not? No one can say. But I do believe that real discussion about Welling playing Superman for George Miller's Justice League of America movie took place. Obviously nothing came of it, but I do believe those discussions really happened. Now guys, I'm going to be real honest with you about something. This, I've got a story that I want to tell you guys, and this is something, this is a story that I would never have told back in the old days. You know? You know, back before I, I took that hiatus, back before I got married, and all that stuff, but I'm telling it now, because people, actions have consequences. With severed social relations comes any abandonment of loyalty. I don't have anybody to protect anymore. Now, back in the old days, I would not have told this story because there was a certain friendship that I wanted to protect. Well, that friendship is now over, and so I don't have any reason to protect anything. So, here we go. A certain little goblin from the Superman homepage reached out to Al Goff, which is to say the executive producer of Smallville, to get perspective on this whole Tom Welling Justice League situation. All right? Now, understand what I'm saying here, guys. The goblin sought comment from somebody who isn't Tom Welling and who isn't Superman, or sorry, isn't George Miller about this whole Superman thing. In case I'm not being clear, the goblin contacted somebody who knew absolutely nothing about this whole Justice League uh, Superman stuff or comment about this Justice League Superman stuff. Somebody who can't possibly answer this question with any kind of knowledge or intelligence. Now, that's not a slam on, on Al Goff, you understand. I'm just saying, he. what could he possibly know about a deal that doesn't involve him? Now, I should say that the Superman homepage, guys, has never been a great website. I mean, content-wise, the best you could say is that it's been mediocre for most of its history. Now, maybe things have changed in the last 10 years. I wouldn't know. But at least in 2007... Well, 2007, I think, was... That was probably a major low point in uh, Superman homepage's history. That was the year when the website had basically degenerated into a Superman Returns circle jerk. Brian Singer could do no wrong, and anything that was related to, uh, related to Smallville could do no right. That was the impression an objective outsider would have had, anyway. Every news item that even hinted at the possibility of a Superman Returns sequel 
was treated as though it was gold-plated confirmation that a sequel was definitely on the way, coming to a theater near you soon. Now, obviously I can't say for certain if the Goblin knew for sure at that time that a Superman Returns sequel was never happening, okay? I, I don't know. I can't say for sure. But I do recall that he and the asshole mods from uh, the uh, Superman homepage didn't lift a finger to tamp down the hysteria that had engulfed that webpage. I would suggest that the Goblin maybe thought, I mean, who's to say what anyone else thinks or doesn't think, but maybe he thought he had no financial reason to tamp it down. The simple fact of the matter is that Superman Returns bitterly divided the fan base. There was the pro-Smallville camp, which was actually quite large at the Superman homepage back in those days, and then there was the pro-Singer camp. Now, it's possible, we, we can't really know for sure, but in theory at least, it is possible that the Goblin could have been the bigger man and taken steps to at least try keeping the peace and reunifying the fan base. But speaking as somebody who actively fucking participated on the Superman homepage back in those days, it doesn't look to me, and again, this is completely my opinion, but it doesn't look to me like anybody from the Superman homepage was interested in avoiding conflict and, uh, or interested in reunifying the fan base or, or, or anything else. The culture of that lousy third-string piece-of-shit website was pro-Superman Returns back in those days, and a wannabe writer's hack-job Smallville reviews for the homepage certainly played into all of that. Now, it's really hard to guess when the wannabe writer's reviews for Smallville turned against Smallville, because the transition clearly happened back in the dreaded Season 4. Well, if you were determined to grind axes against Smallville, how would anybody even know during the dreaded season four? But anyway, even when the show legitimately improved beginning in the fifth season, the wannabe writer continued filing negative reviews, and often, I think, for the flimsiest of reasons. By the time of the sainted season seven, I think the wannabe writer's reviews had pretty much become shrines to his own arrogance. His groupies would basically stroke his ego in the feedback section of his reviews, and the whole thing was just pretty sick, to be honest. Now, I tuned out of the wannabe writer's Smallville reviews on the Superman homepage probably sometime around the middle of Season 6, which was Smallville's shippiest season, incidentally. I didn't read them week in and week out like I did back in the mighty third season, but I still glanced in now and then, and it was pretty clear that the knives were out for Smallville. Smallville was renewed for new seasons all the time. Meanwhile, Brian Singer's turd fest of a movie didn't have a snowball's chance in hell of ever getting a sequel, and I can't help thinking that bothered the pro-Singer members of the Superman homepage at that time, one of whom was this wannabe writer who rather infamously said that Superman Returns was better than Donner, okay? It was better than Superman Returns, I shit you, or rather, it was better than Superman the movie, I kid you not, he really said that. So, naturally, they took their all of their hostility out on Smallville. The part about this that amuses me the most, though, is how 
The Superman homepage was utterly ignored for releasing Brian Singer's video journals during the production of Superman Returns. That honor, such as it was, went to bluetights.net rather than the Superman homepage. Now, you'd think that getting utterly snubbed by Singer, even though the Goblin practically lived in the Superman Returns production's backyard, you'd think that would have been upsetting and I don't know, apparently you'd be wrong. It should go without saying that the Sainted Season 7 never stood a chance on Superman homepage. So don't go there expecting to read any honest reviews that, are, that were written by the wannabe writer, because there aren't many to be found after the Mighty Season 3. Again. I never would have said any of this back in the old days, but these aren't the old days anymore. These are the new days. And in this brave new world, I don't have any reason whatsoever to conceal my abysmally fucking low opinion of the Superman homepage anymore. But I used to. Now, if you enjoy the Superman homepage, dude, good for you. But personally, I'm never going to think of it. Because of just the negative experiences that I had there, I am never going to think of it as anything other than a toxic waste dump of annoying ads, crappy designs, and third-string content. That's only my opinion, though. The rest of you are free to believe whatever you want. I'm just only speaking my opinion, speaking from my own point of view here. And to bring it all back to the main subject, the Goblin emailed Al Goff about Tom Welling starring in the Justice League movie. Now, Goff's answer to that was rather succinct. Tom Welling can't star in the movie because he's under contract with Smallville. Now, there are reasons why that may not have been insurmountable, but the Goblin contacted Goff, and it's reasonable to question if that played some role in Welling ultimately not playing Superman in Miller's Justice League film. And to be honest, there's probably no way to ever know for certain. All we can do is guess, and that's all this is. It's just speculation. It's just a guess. But personally, I don't see how the Goblin contacting Al Goff could have possibly helped matters. But like I say, we don't know for sure, and anything that gets tossed around here is complete speculation and should be con considered complete speculation. The most important issue, at least for me, is that the culture of Superman homepage has been toxic towards Smallville, and anybody connected with it for a pretty long time now. For these and other reasons, most of which I don't dare say out loud on mic, I've got a pretty low opinion of Superman homepage. So again, back before I took my hiatus, back before I got married, I never would have told that story. Why? Because I had a friendship with somebody that I wanted to protect. But that friendship is apparently over, so my loyalty to that person is over too. So there, I said my piece. Now. That's enough opinion posting for today. For the next helping of Magnus Talks About Smallville, the deep dive through the Sainted Season 7, which is my favorite season of the show ever, continues with Episode 2, Kara. I just have no idea when that episode is going to be coming along, but it will be coming along sooner or later. So, I guess, how is this different from any other day? But anyway, see you next time.
Okay, so I think that's just about the end of that. Trennis Magnus Punches Reality is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Podcast Network. You can find the home for Trennis Magnus Punches Reality at twotruefreaks.com. You can also find this show on Facebook just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. There you can interact with your fellow listeners and also see notifications of new episodes when I put them up. My Facebook group is the only official place where you can find everything that has anything to do with this show. The reason for that is because I despise Twitter. Pretty much everything about Twitter sucks. So join the Facebook group today. Speaking of Facebook, you can friend me just by searching for Trentus Magnus, which is spelled T-R-E-N-T-U-S-M-A-G-N-U-S. You can email me and my parole officer at trentusmagnus at gmail.com. But remember, all feedback and correspondence emailed to me will be read on mic unless you request otherwise. So, if your email isn't intended for public consumption, don't forget to say so. Otherwise, I'll assume that you want your correspondence to be heard by my dozens, and dozens, of fans across the world. Do you have a suggestion for a topic? feel free to email me, and I might consider thinking about the possibility of potentially discussing whatever you have in mind someday. And that's a promise. Since we're on the subject of feedback, Trentus Magnus Punches Reality can be found on iTunes just by searching for Trentus Magnus Punches Reality. Won't you take a moment to rate my show on iTunes? That helps new listeners find the show. And just in case you don't think that I've given you enough shit to click on just yet, you can sponsor my show simply by going to twotruefreaks.com. There you can find the PayPal button, donate any amount at all, specify that you're sending Magnus some monetary love, and you will be an official sponsor of my show's very next episode, with your message read in the show's opener. It's that easy. And there's no minimum donation. Be a Trennis Magnus show sponsor today. I don't have a Patreon. Because if you think that I hate Twitter, boy, just wait till you hear what I think of Patreon. So, if you want to throw some bucks my way, the Two True Freaks PayPal link is the way to do it. The contents of this podcast are fictitious, hypothetical, and probably completely unnecessary. Any similarity to living persons or real-life events is purely coincidental and void where prohibited by law. Some assembly required. Batteries not included. Many will enter. Few will win. The white zone is for passenger loading and unloading only. All models are over the age of 18. Trinus Magnus Punches Reality is a Magnus... Media Enterprises Limited Production in association with Demanzacor of Milan, Italy.